0: Hey everyone, you're listening to the MLEPC Podcast. Thank you for joining us. The podcast features every previous Sunday's sermon and plenty of other cool content like interviews and miniseries. Please remember to share our content and subscribe to our channel so you can stay up to date with everything that we create. You can find out more about what's happening at the church by visiting our website at mlepc.org or checking us out on our social media. Once again, we thank you for tuning in to the Emily PC podcast, and we hope to see you at an event soon. So our first scripture this morning is going to be from the, the book of Esther. Most of you know the story of Esther, but just to remind you, this passage is, is the, the, the king has just issued the order that the Jews are to be killed, and Mordecai comes, at the, Esther's cousin, and says, here's the deal. God has placed you in the palace, and you need to go to the king and intercede for us. And she tells him that that is not going to be possible without God's help. So this is Esther chapter 4, starting with verse 11. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, or night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. And turning over to Hebrews 4, we see a very different throne room experience. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of obedience. For the word of God is, God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's interesting to think about that scene with Esther. Can you imagine, as she was told by Mordecai, you have to go to the king. But it was against the law, and that law said it was punishable by death. If you were Esther with this call on your life, how would you feel about walking into that throne room? Not knowing what you would would encounter, even though this was her very own husband, she did not know if she would live or die. This king was kind of capricious. He had, he had sent away his first queen just because she wouldn't do what he asked her to do. And he was easily influenced by the evil Haman to, to go after the Jews, even though Mordecai had been faithful to him and had saved his life. This king was, was unpredictable. He could do anything he wanted to do. And she knew that she was putting her life in, in his hands if she walked in that room. Thankfully, God protected her and provided for her. But it was only God's faithfulness that made it possible for who, her to do that. It wasn't the king that she was approaching. That is such an incredible contrast to what we just read today. Jesus invites us to boldly approach the throne of grace. Not to, to walk in the throne room with fear and trepidation, but rather to come boldly to the king. The king that we serve is not a capricious God. He's not doing different things on a whim. He's not going to decide one day to, to, to welcome you into the throne room and the next day to smite you. He is the one who has made the way He's the one that has held out the scepter to make it possible for us to enter in, to boldly approach his throne of grace where we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is Jesus Christ who, as we look at this passage, we'll see how he turns rebellion into rest. He turns work into worship. And he turns fear into, into freedom rebellion into rest work into worship and and fear into freedom remember the hebrews as they were um, as they were working and, and, and trying to survive in, in Rome, this is a Jewish Christian population who had been through a persecution um, as a result of the, uh, the persecution of one of the Caesars. It wasn't as bad as the one that is coming. Uh, that Nero, C- Nero the Caesar that will be in a 10 or 20 years from now, he, he's really, really bad. But the Hebrews have gone through a very hard time. And they are weary. And their coping mechanism is like, you know, this Jesus thing is, is really hard. So wouldn't it be easier for us to go back to, to the way that we used to do when we had all the Jewish rules and rituals? You know, we didn't have to work so hard. We just filled out the checklist and we were good. And, and the author of Hebrews is calling them out on that. He's saying, don't fall back into that religiosity. That is not going to save you. Jesus Christ is the only one who can save you and open the way to, to, the, to salvation and to the Father. And he uses this interesting argument between chapters 3 and 4. He's talking about rest. And, and it's, it's, it's sort of a, a heady argument. Trust me, I've wrestled with this for a week, trying to exactly get around what the guy was saying. But he's, he's calling the people to rest in God. That's not just a physical rest, but it's a state of shalom, a state of, uh, of, of peace and flourishing with God. He uses several different images. He, the first image he uses is from Genesis chapter 1. God created the heavens and the earth on, in the, on the six days, and the seventh day, he rested. He rested because his work was complete and he was able to say, It is good. And that is what the author is saying. We can enter into that, that completion of God's will, that, that God has worked and it is complete, and we can rest in that. He's also pointing to the rest that we will have at the end of time, when Jesus returns and when he He, he opens up the, the path for us to, to rest with him for all eternity. But he also makes an interesting point that it's not just in the past it's not just in the future it is today today he says it multiple times this rest is for today he brings up the the rebellious hebrews as they were rescued up out of egypt and they were brought into the the wilderness and then what did they do they griped and complained and boy isn't that our default mechanism when things aren't going our way when things aren't obvious when we don't see a clear path We start to whine at God. What are you doing? Why are we here? (laughs) This passage draws a lot from Psalm 95, and Psalm 95 names specifically this issue. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. Meribah was the place where uh, they were like, "We're out of water. Why did you bring us into the desert to die?" And and Moses had rebuked them for complaining, and then. God brought water out of the rock. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose heart go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declare an oath on my anger. They shall not enter my rest. So it was specifically rebellion that kept these Israelites from from entering God's rest. His rest at that point was pointing to the the promised land. They are not going to be entering into the place that I have promised them. They're going to die in the wilderness. This whole generation has to pass away, and they will not enter my rest. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, you guys are in the danger of doing the same thing. You're rebelling against the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. You're saying, "You know what? That sounded really good, but we want the easy button. We want to get out the easy way." And and you can't do that without Jesus. And He's calling them to enter into the rest that He offered, that God offers, the rest in trusting that God knows what he's doing, that God knows his will, that he has a a perfect will for you. If we rebel, we we will never find rest. As St. Augustine said, our hearts, my hearts, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So if we are rebelling, we will constantly be restless. But if we are are resting in the Lord, that is where the true shalom, the true peace is going to come. What does it look like for us to rest today? It literally means like today, today, as in Sabbath. That's a big part of our rest. One of my professors in seminary used to say that Sabbath is a way of reminding us that God is God and you are not. (laughs) Because we feel like we have to work and work and work and work. And if we don't, if if we stop working, if we stop doing things like, what do you think? The earth will stop revolving? (laughs) How we, we feel like everything will fall down if we stop. But God is saying, remember that I'm the one that holds it. I'm the one <laughs> that is, is with the earth spinning. I'm the one that makes the sun rise and set. It's not your job. And it's okay to rest. It's okay to lay our, our labors down and say, God, I trust you to run my life and run the world. God is saying, I'm, I'm big enough, I am enough to take care of it all. Rest in me. And that rest carries through not just on a Sunday, but it carries through our work week as well. My dad used to point to, he would always say, the the kingdom of the Lord is at hand. How close is your hand? It's right here. And and he would point to, to Psalm 23, where it says, he makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. The thing is that we can be at rest in God at the same time we are going to work or going to school or doing the, the things that we need to do, we can our hearts can be at rest even while we work because God is the one that is in charge of it all. We can lay our strivings down at his feet and know that he is the one who will grant us rest. The, the, the connection that the author is making here is that faith is... is Shown by obedience. The, the Israelites in the wilderness had no faith, and that was evidenced by their rebellion. So it's not that your obedience earns your way to heaven, but it's, faith is, is shown and demonstrated by your obedience. It's like in James, he said, Faith without works is dead. It's not that, that, that works gain your salvation. But if you're not living in such a way that you are following Jesus Christ, then, you, then it's evidence that your faith isn't there. Is your faith strong enough to, that you are able to say, thank you, God, for all that you have done for me, and now I want to follow you. Now I want to obey you. When we obey the Lord, we leave that restlessness and we find rest in Jesus Christ. One of the things that it says is that we will rest from their work as God did from his. That, that as we rest in God, we find that that God takes over, and again, our work doesn't it, our, our work is no longer the dominant thing of our life. It's not constant striving. In the um, in the, the amazing hymn, a mighty fortress is our God. It says, we're, the, we're not the right man on our side. Our striving would be losing. Our striving would be losing. How much of your life do you feel like you're striving? You're striving to, to get a promotion. You're striving to get an A on an exam. You're striving to, to be good enough constantly. But all of that striving is losing. The striving, the only striving... That is appropriate. Is striving to draw closer to Jesus Christ, striving to be more like Him, striving to understand Him and pursue Him, as it says um, that that we it says in verse eleven. Therefore, let us make every effort to enter that race. That we're working at resting. It's an interesting contrast to think about what work is and, and what rest is but i would say that work becomes worship when we are in the lord when you think about the garden of eden after the fall after adam and eve eat the fruit and rebel against god what is god what one of the curses that god says over them is that your your labors will now be toil it will now be hard work they, before the fall they were told to be stewards of creation to tend the animals and the, and, and the plants and everything else. But that labor was not labor. It was not hard work. That labor was actually rest. But then when sin entered into the world, that labor became toil. And, and, and that work means that we'll never rest because we always have to work hard. But there's an interesting contrast here. When you think about the word worship, do you know what the word worship means? It literally means work or, or, or to wait, you know, like a waiter waits on a table. There's a waiting aspect of worship. So, so even though worship is work, worship is actually rest in God. And God transforms our work into worship when we, when we focus on him. God uses the, the work to become Sabbath rest because it's transformed into worship. Who will enter God's rest? It's those who believe, those who, who rest in the Lord. Whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And our, trans, our, our transformation becomes people who strive after things of the earth into people who strive after Jesus Christ. We're not the right man on our side. Our striving would be losing. But with Jesus Christ, our striving becomes bountiful, flourishing, shalom, rest, peace in Christ. When we worship, it's not just the work of those of us on the stage. It's the, the work of worship is the people. It's your job <laughs> to worship when you come to church. You're not the spectators and we're the performers. You all are doing the work of worship. But as we, our, our work, our labor becomes centered on Christ, it becomes rest, Sabbath rest, and it is glorifying to the Lord. Our restless hearts begin to rest in him. We have to know that there, there's a now and not yet component of this. We've used that phrase before. It is true that we can rest in Jesus Christ right now. But it is also true that we have a long way to go before there's complete and total rest. We are, we are in between those two things. So they are both real right now. We, we, we can lie down in green pastures right now with God. And yet we also are at work in a broken world. We are surrounded by hard things. We are, are, are having to face all kinds of things that feels like we need to be constantly striving. But when we enter into worship, it sort of recalibrates our brain. It helps us to, to turn our focus around to see what's really important, what is of lasting merit, what is going to be eternal. And when we have that orientation, then our work becomes worship as well. We can can sweep floors and clean toilets to God's glory. Anything we do for Him results in His glory and becomes a source of worship. As we think about these things, as we we enter into God's rest, as as we turn our hearts to worship, then we think about the difference between fear and freedom. How often do we walk around in fear? In our, uh, our video series that's going along with our sermon series, D- Derwin Gregg tells a funny story about his adopted cat, Mr. Boots. <laughs> Mr. Boots is a fat cat. They got him as a rescue, and he did not trust anybody when he got to their house. Like the, Mr. Boots' work was to, to protect himself and to be independent and stay away from everybody else. He didn't trust the family. He didn't trust the love that they were trying to, to give him. He, they didn't, tru- he didn't trust that, that they would provide and protect and be a safe place. And he said it took him a long time to start to, you know, gently nudge them and then finally, like, be able to sit next to them and finally be able to purr and, and all of those things. Isn't that a picture of us? Like, okay, God, I know you're good. I know you're, like, filling my food bowl, but we don't trust you other than that. Like, this, this whole love thing. We go back into that image of, of Esther when we think that the king is going to smite us when we walk into the throne room. We, we think that God is capricious. We don't think that he is trustworthy. We think he'll change his mind. You know, he's been nice to me for a little bit, but, boy, you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop. That fear cripples us. And we start to do like Mr. Boots and try to be self-protective. We start try to insulate ourselves just in case. We've been hurt by humans, and we think that God will act the same way that humans did to hurt us as well. In order to overcome that fear and the bondage that we live in, as we we try to, to protect ourselves and dig in, in order to overcome that, we need heart surgery. We need heart surgery. We need to, God to change our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. We need him to, to take away all of the, the, the protective walls and masks that we put up so that he can can restore us to our rightful place and our rightful identity. Our identity comes from Christ. One of my favorite stories in the, um, in the Narnia Chronicles by C.S. Lewis is in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I don't know if you know the story, but Eustace is one of the kids that goes into Narnia, and he's a jerk, and everybody hates him. And he's one of those people, when you're reading the book, you're like, God, I can't stand this guy. (laughs) He's awful. And they get to this island, and they're trying to explore the island, and, and Eustace finds a big cave full of gold. And he's like, I am all set. And he just has a party you know, with all the gold treasure. And he puts this, the, this gold cuff on his arm. And he's just like, woohoo, I made it. And he eventually drifts off to sleep. And when he wakes up, he's a dragon. <laughs> he is like, that boy is covered in a giant dragon skin. And everybody's afraid of him because they think that he's really a dragon. And he tries to tell them that, no, I'm, I'm used to this, I'm Eustace. And finally, Aslan shows up and says, okay, we'll peel off the dragon skin. And he's like, uh, okay. So he you know, tries to be like a lizard peeling the skin. And so he, he scrapes himself off and looks down, and he's still a dragon. <laughs> so he tries again, and he scrapes himself off, and he tries to peel off his dragon skin, and he's still a dragon. And then Aslan comes along and takes one giant claw and scrapes him all the way down to the bone. It Eustace feels like he's being killed by this, by Aslan, it just divided all the way down. And gently, Aslan peels off the dragon skin, and he's restored to being a boy. That's the kind of freedom that we need. We, our fears, our, our, our selfishness, our greed, our, our hurts, and our, our damage, our sin, all of those things have put on us a dragon skin. But God is able to reach in and pull that off. We just read, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. That is the the surgeon's scalpel that we need to to tear away all of the crust that we have on, on us and to set us free. Eustace would never have been free as a dragon even though he had all this massive pile of gold. He was trapped. God wants to set us free from the things that we think are secure, the things that we think will make us happy. He wants to set us free so that we can walk in his freedom, so that we can can be be set free so that we aren't controlled by those things that we're grabbing onto anymore. But the scary thing is we are completely exposed then. When when it says, everything is uncovered and laid before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Anybody terrified by that statement? (laughs) That is really scary to be that vulnerable, to be that exposed. Everything we have ever done is on display for God. And that's when we immediately want to start covering up again. We want to hide. We want to to, to go back to the dragon skin because we felt at least a little bit safer. But then the next statement that it says there, so we've been laid bare. And then it says, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses but we have one who's been tempted in every way as we are. Jesus Christ knows every single thing about us and he knows how that feels. He is not coming in and going, wow, that was really a doozy, you're done. Jesus comes in and says, I know, I know how that feels. I know how many times you've made a mistake. I know who you are and I love you. Anyway, now let's set you free from that dragon skin. You don't have anything to worry about. When when God just strips us bare and we are left completely vulnerable, that is when we are most welcomed into his open arms. That's when we are face to face, not with a king who could smite us with, with one wave of his hand, but we are faced with a God who loves us. A high priest who has gone through everything that we have gone through and has paid the price, has paid the price for all the stupid things we've done so that we can be set free. He is the one who is both priest and king who is able to welcome us with open arms, boldly approaching the throne of grace. This is the transformation that God offers. We have been walking in fear, but God has freedom for us. He is the one who wants to set us free so that we can run into to, to, to his arms. I was talking to the, the Jubilee kids this week um, doing their chapel on Friday, and I wanted to, to see what they thought about this image. And it was really interesting. I asked them, okay, what are some names of God? And they were saying, you know, Lord God, and, and somebody came out with Elohim. I was pretty impressed with that one. Uh, all of these big names for God, and I'm like, what's up? What's a family name for God? And one little bitty one goes, "Father, God?" <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. And it's not just Father God, the formal Father, it's Abba Father, Daddy, Father. When God says, "Let us boldly approach the throne of grace," he's welcoming his children into his arms. One of my favorite things to do when I was a kid was swing on our front porch swing. And I could spend hours out there. And when I think about what it means to go to Abba Father, that's what I picture is sitting on the porch swing with with God. Just hanging out with Jesus. What a different image from walking into a throne room in fear. God is there. He's our daddy God. He is the one who wants to welcome us so that we can lay it all down. Brothers and sisters, I know that we so often are driven by the fears in our lives. Fear of failure, that's a huge one for so many of us. What if, they, what if all, everything I've ever done just falls apart and, and I can never get anywhere? What, what if I fall flat on my face and everybody sees? But we don't need to fear failure because we have a high priest who can empathize with us and our weaknesses. He has seen and experienced what looked like complete and total abject failure. He came to seek and save the lost and died on a cross. But his failure became victory through his resurrection. And even though we fear failure, we know that Jesus will always welcome us And always provide for us. I've told you this before. One of my favorite quotes recently I saw was, when God called you, he also already factored in your stupidity. (laughs) Isn't that great? So God knows that you're going to fail. That is not a newsflash to God. He knows that you're going to fail. But he knows that his grace is greater than any of your failures. You do not need to fear failure. Failure. Because Christ has made it possible for us to to be free, to make mistakes, to to struggle, to to be weak and tempted. But he's made a way for us to escape all of that. We do not need to fear failure. We fear failure exposure often. We fear uh, we're, we're just burdened by shame. You know, if people only knew who I really was, if they could only see what what this is, you know, I'm just faking it. I don't know what I'm doing. We fear exposure, but, you know, newsflash, God has used his, his incredibly sharp sword, scalpel, to divide us. He knows everything about us. But he's, even before we believed in him, he died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He knew the worst about you, the worst things you could ever do, and chose to die for you. Even before you, what, what you think of is you deserved it. Hey, we're never going to earn enough to earn God's f- forgiveness. But we don't need to fear exposure because he chose to love us, and he chose to forgive us, even at our worst if you feel like you're a little more cleaned up than you used to be, well, guess what? God doesn't love you more right now than he did back then. And he's not going to love you anymore because he loves you infinitely now. That love is with you even right now. Fear of rejection is another fear that tends to cripple us. It's one I struggle with all the time. We are afraid that, again, with exposure, if they only knew, the first thing that people will do is, is reject us. If we fail, they'll reject us. If they, if, if they see who we are, they'll reject us. If we mess up, they'll reject us. How often we struggle with that. But God is saying, boldly approach the throne of grace, where you will never, ever, ever be rejected. One of my favorite scriptures that I have to remind myself of a lot is that we are accepted in the beloved. It's not a beautiful phrase. We are accepted in the beloved. The beloved Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God, will always accept us, even if the world rejects us. And boy, does he know what rejection feels like. The entire world, except for a very small handful of people, completely rejected him. And yet he never gave up loving. Forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus Christ will never leave you or forsake you. He will never reject you. No matter what other people do, you are accepted in the beloved. Brothers and sisters, through Jesus Christ, our our, our rebellion can be transformed into rest. Doesn't rest sound good? Let us not be restless, but rather to rest in Jesus Christ. Our our work, our labor, our striving can be transformed in Jesus into worship. Worship in the Sabbath rest and worship in all of the labors of our hands. And all of our fears can be set down and can be transformed into freedom. When we walk into that throne room and not see a fierce, terrifying God, but rather our daddy God, our Abba Father, who says, come unto me all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Hi, this is Pastor Carolyn. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can check out our website at mlepc.org and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a podcast. Have a blessed day.